Uh, if you brought a Bible, would you turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 28? Matthew 28. And if you have children up through fifth grade and want them to go to some teaching specifically for their age group, feel free to take them now. If you'd like them to stay here, that's totally fine too, of course, as well. Uh, we'll be in Matthew 28, and if you're using one of the Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, uh, that is on page 487 in those Bibles, page 487. Now, before we jump into the passage for uh, this morning, a couple things just to update you on as uh, a church family. Last Sunday evening, so a week ago, we uh, gathered for our members meeting, and after literally years of study and, and prayer and consideration together, we made a very important decision as a church family, and that was to uh, adopt a new statement of faith, and we placed that into our church constitution as uh, an affirmation of what we believe the Bible says in its most central, important areas. So that's a real reason to celebrate. It's an important accomplishment for every church to work through that process. Uh, church on Mills had a statement of faith from its very beginning, uh, but we really needed to update ours, and that's now been accomplished. So thank you for the way in which you invested in that process. Um, if you haven't, haven't seen it, maybe you're new here, if you go to the Church on Mill website uh, under beliefs, you would find that uh, document. And our hope is that it would be useful uh, far beyond just uh, something people sign when they join the church, but it would be a part of our regular discipleship and devotional life great summary of what the scriptures say. So use it as you talk with your kids about your faith. We can use it with each other as we're seeking to build each other up in the Lord Jesus. And just as we face times where we have questions or meet areas of discouragement, it's a good document to go back to and be reminded of not everything the Bible says, but the most central important things the scriptures say. Um, I encourage you to read it often. Uh, second thing just wanted to let you know about is when you came in the doors today, hopefully you were given a couple of postcards that look like this. Um, if you'll pull those out, maybe one of them, and look on the back, you'll see some information about the next sermon series we're going to cover. So starting next week, we're going to be in a new series called Treasuring the Grace of Christ. And uh, that series will take us through most of the rest of the year as we'll be looking at the book of Galatians. Galatians is one of the shorter letters in the New Testament, and uh, it is a wonderful book to help us consider afresh and anew exactly what grace is. Grace is one of those words that we hear, but I wonder how often we really consider its significance and its, its meaning. I'm particularly excited about this uh, series that we'll be going through together starting next week uh, because we are our people Regardless of how long we've been in church, we are people prone to believe that we are what we accomplish. And that is the opposite of what the Scriptures actually say. The scriptures teach that we are what Christ has accomplished. And the essence of the difference is what grace is. Grace is what God has done for us in Christ that enables us to become different people. It's not something we earn or manage or manipulate or force our way into. And Galatians does a great job of showing us the dangers 
of believing if we take on certain actions, then that in some way causes us to merit a right relationship with God. So we're going to be considering just the, the very heart of the gospel the rest of the year. And uh, we gave you two of those cards. One, hope you'll stick it somewhere. That'll be reminding you to pray for that series and um, be reading through the book of Galatians on your own. The other, hopefully you know somebody that you can invite. Uh, we, of course, all know people who have yet to find uh, a church home. Whether they're followers of Jesus or not, perhaps this would be a good time to actually make an invite, stick a card in their hand, and we'll start fresh next week in that book. For today, though, uh, we'll be in uh, Matthew 28. Uh, by way of introduction, just a question uh, for you to consider. I wonder what would we be willing to take on if we knew it would be impossible to fail? If we knew that success was 100% guaranteed, then how great would the lengths we would go to be committed to the particular mission that we've been given? Well, I want to show you today in a passage that many of you have already heard and just need a refresher on. And maybe for some of us it'll be new. But I want to show you a place in the Bible where Jesus gave his church a mission. And he says it's impossible that we would fail. He says that it's guaranteed because it comes with his power. And it's done in his authority. Now before we get into all of that, uh, maybe just a reminder on where we've been. We're taking a couple of weeks just to reconsider together what a church is. And so we considered a few weeks ago from Psalm 34 that the church is a gathering of people who worship God and to invite others to come and to worship God too. And then last week, uh, Mr. Potato Head made, helped us look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we considered the nature of the church, that the church is a body. And the body has many parts, and those parts all work together to accomplish the same goal, the same mission. And on the fly, this was not planned, I made a passing comment about the fact that I broke my pinky toe uh, a couple months ago. And on Tuesday morning, I decided I'd post it on Instagram, hopefully remind you, not of how gross feet are, but of the message. And then Tuesday night, I was playing and I broke my foot. So, I want to show you today the extent to which I will go to help you remember <laughs> what the Bible says. So for the next six weeks to three months, I was told, uh, you will be able to have a constant reminder of 1 Corinthians 12. So um, that is what the boot is for. Um, I think that um, I'm learning that the body is interconnected. And if one part hurts, then everything hurts. So thank you for your uh, patience with me as I hobble around. Um, the analogy, of course, being used there in the scriptures is designed to help us see that as a church family, when one of us has a difficulty, when one of us has a struggle, when one of us has a disappointment, that, those are the, on the negative side. But one of us has a success, a joy, a surprise. That the, the design of God is that the whole body would see and would rejoice and would 
hurt and would help one another. And in so doing, we would be growing up into maturity as a church family and would be showing the world who still has yet to believe in Christ how good God is in giving us such a unique family of God, a body of Christ in which different parts have different functions, but all are important. So that's what we considered uh, last week. And today, I want us to finish up this series by considering not exactly why the church exists, although we'll talk a little bit about that, and not exactly what the church is, although we'll talk a little bit about that. But in particular, how are we to fulfill what God's given us to do? That's what the end of Matthew 28 tells us. Now, we don't have time this morning, of course, to read the entire chapter, so let me before we read the end, just summarize quickly for you what's, what's in the beginning. The opening verses of Matthew 28 describe the miracle of the resurrection. Jesus died on a cross at the hands of Roman executioners on a Friday. And all the disciples spent Friday afternoon, Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, devastated. Because the person they had pledged themselves to, the one they believed that God had sent, the one they thought was the new Messiah who would lead Israel into new days of victory, it appeared was a liar. Because the Messiah, the Old Testament said, would reign forever. And how can someone reign forever who is dead? And so all their hopes appeared to be dashed against the cold, hard reality of a dead Jesus. The, the Christ they had trusted in was now m- nothing more than a corpse. And so on Friday and Saturday, it looked like everything Jesus said about being the Messiah, about bringing a kingdom that would last forever, about being the one upon whom all forgiveness and love and truth can be found. The one who came from the Father. It seemed like all of that was just a heaping pile of lies. But then as we sang about just a moment ago, one day, that Sunday... He was resurrected. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with that message, this is the central thing Christians believe. We believe that Jesus didn't stay dead and that he wasn't merely resuscitated, but that he came back to a whole new way of life. He came back resurrected. He came back to a body that is the prototype of what every Christian will one day have. A body where you won't need a boot because your foot won't get broken. A body where everything will be right and working. A body where we'll be a part of a kingdom of God permanently where all things have been put back together. This is what Christians believe because Jesus is the prototype. He is the resurrected king. Jesus came back from the dead to show 
that everything he said was, in fact, true. This is the central message of Christianity. Now, incidentally, just this is for free, an aside, this is why Christians ever since the first century have gathered on Sunday because we symbolically start our week as followers of Jesus remembering what happened on that day, on that Sunday. And in so doing, we remind ourselves as we look ahead to a new week filled with challenges that we don't face those challenges alone and that what's most important is that our Savior is alive and well and that the resurrection is true and that whatever we face on Monday, as painful as it may be, is in fact not the end, that another Sunday's coming because Jesus is alive. Amen? Now, before Jesus, the rest of Matthew 18 will tell us, before he returned to the Father in heaven, he spent a bunch of days, over a month, if we put together the whole story, appearing to his disciples and teaching them on what they were supposed to do after he ascended back to his throne in heaven. And it is now to that that we come in verses 16 to 20. Would you follow with me on the screen or in your Bible? Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Next phrase is what I really want to focus in on, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, this brilliant passage, probably the second most famous section in the entire Bible, teaches that the church's mission is to make disciples among all peoples. I really want to focus in on that phrase in verse 19 and all of verse 20, but it's going to take me most of the sermon to get there. And so this is one of those messages where you don't need to be scared because the introduction isn't commensurate to the rest of the time you'll be here. But let me try to really set up the how given in the text, the plan of God by spending most of the time talking about the mission that Jesus has given us. But before we can get to that mission, in verse 18, i got to not skip verse 17. Did you follow all that? Now, verse 17 is one of those verses that I fear preachers skip. And so I don't want to make that mistake. By verse 17, chronologically speaking, Jesus had already spent 40 days, perhaps a little bit more, appearing again and again and again to his followers after the resurrection. And he did so to show them over and over who he is and that he, in fact, was alive again. And for many of those occasions, they worshipped him. Now, friends you're not supposed to worship another human being. We're just people. 
And so their worship of Christ was showing that they, in fact, had come to understand him to be the resurrected Lord, God himself, King of kings, Lord of lords. They worshiped. But did you notice what else that verse says? It says three little words that would be easier to scratch out. It says, but some doubted. Now, friends, the Bible is shockingly honest. This is one of those places where it says what you wouldn't expect it to say. If the story of the resurrection isn't true, if, if it's just a hoax, if Matthew decided long after the fact that he was going to come up with some cohesive plan in order to persuade people to believe something that isn't actually true, then why would he have included those three words? He wouldn't. You understand what I'm saying? If, if the resurrection didn't happen, and all of this stuff ever since then, it's just the teachings of people to try and persuade others of something that isn't actually spiritually true, then Matthew would not have included the detail that some of the people who saw Jesus with their own eyes doubted. If the Bible was historically inaccurate and intentionally deceptive, those three words would not have made the cut. You see, friends, Matthew recorded for us what actually happened. Some worshiped and some doubted. Now, this uncertainty or hesitation that some of the disciples felt about Jesus is understandable, isn't it? I mean, they watched him be executed. They watched him be put into a tomb. They watched his body be pummeled beyond recognition. And people don't come back from that. And yet Jesus did. So friend, if, if you're here this morning and maybe you came with a friend or a spouse or you just stumbled in and you have questions about Jesus, maybe we could even say you have doubt or maybe even further than doubt, we could say you have open hostility, then I guess I would want to say to you, uh, you're in good company. Because some of the people who knew Jesus the closest and who literally looked at his resurrected body still had doubts. I want to encourage you to not stuff those doubts. Because we have something that the disciples didn't have. You see, it's easy to think, well, if I could just see him with my own eyes, then I would know. If I could just poke at him, touch him, hold his hand, hug him, then I would know he's not dead. But, but friend, these, some of these disciples did those very things, and they still had trouble believing. But we have things they didn't. We have the Holy Spirit, and we have 2,000 years of history in which not hundreds, not thousands, not millions, but billions of people have come to believe this message. We have 
2,000 years of churches being built and lives being changed by the resurrected Jesus Christ. So I guess I'd ask you to take those doubts and talk to God about them. He already knows. You're not going to surprise him. He can handle them. Visit with godly people who can offer good counsel and help you get more information. Get together with one of our church's four elders to, to share the areas of doubt that you have. Read good books. There's lots of them. There's several back there at the bookstall that specifically deal with questions people have who have not yet trusted Christ. Or the kind of lingering doubts sometimes Christians have. I want to encourage you to study the evidence. It is persuasive. But most of all, I want to encourage you to pray. What exactly these disciples doubted, we simply don't know. It doesn't tell us. Maybe maybe they doubted that the message that Jesus was giving them to go share would have an effect. Maybe they doubted that Jesus would stay. Maybe they doubted that he was the resurrection. We just don't know. But whatever your doubts are, God is sufficient and able to hear them and to address them with you. Don't think because you have some hesitation that you should just give up. The disciples themselves worshipped and some doubted. Now back to the main thing we want to think about today. You'll notice that Jesus in this text gives us a mission. That mission is what Christians have come to call the Great Commission. He also gives us a plan, and we'll talk about that plan. And then finally, he gives us the confidence upon which we can execute that plan. So in our remaining few minutes together, would you think about those three things with me? The mission, the plan, and the confidence. The mission is summarized in the front half of verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Friends, we've been given the greatest of all privileges, that mission is to make disciples out of all nations. The New Testament of the Bible was originally written in Greek, and the word disciple means, uh, the word disciple is the word methetes. Now, that's not a word we use, obviously, in everyday life. We also don't often use the word disciple. And yet, that word represents a concept that we are ever familiar with. You see, there are disciples of college professors. There there are disciples of sports teams. There are disciples of artists. There are disciples of authors. There's disciples of actors and actresses. There are disciples of the popular kids at school. There are disciples of doctors. There are disciples of businesses. There are disciples of hobbies. Discipleship is everywhere. It is inescapable. Discipleship is looking at someone else and believing what they say and aiming to take on their way of life. That's what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is someone who's given her life over to becoming like someone else. A disciple accepts the teaching given to him, and takes it on as a standard of life. 
A disciple is someone who finds joy in what someone else has accomplished and aims to be like them. A disciple longs to not only know what the other knows, but to live like the other lives. And friends, every single bit of advertising you will see in the coming week is all built on making disciples, trying to get you to buy and believe the brand. Do you see that? Discipleship is everywhere. Jesus says here in the Great Commission that our mission is to make disciples of the one, the only one, who can ever actually bear the weight of being your discipler. Because only Jesus has sufficiently taken on the work of bearing our sin and dying and rising again. So a disciple of Jesus is simply someone who's come to believe and trust in the gospel and then placed their faith and confidence in him, aiming then through God's strength to learn the ki- to live the kind of life that Jesus lived. This is what it means to follow Jesus. The gospel can be summarized in lots of different ways, but maybe one of the ways we often think the most about here as a church family could be summarized in, in four words that if you're in Disciple Makers 1 and you're reading this week, which is about 30 of us, you'll find this week in the book you're reading these four words. So this is a bonus content for you. It can be summarized in the four words, God, people, Christ, response. If you're looking for a great simple way to remember the essential message of the gospel, it's God, people, Christ, response. God existed before all of us because he's the creator, he's in charge, he's good, he's always been, he's powerful, he's right, he's kind, he's loving, he's just. People, men and women, have been made in God's image and therefore Whatever our intelligence or financial level, whatever our ethnicity and our educational level, we are infinitely valuable more than anything else God has made. We're made to represent something of what he's like and to help each other live life, and yet we're broken. All of us have chosen When faced with opportunities to go the way of what God has said, we have instead gone the other way. And if you don't believe that, then have a child. It doesn't take teaching for a child to choose to disobey. It is innate. It's inside of them, right? Now, yes, I know little Susie Q is cute, but Susie Q will choose to go her own way. We are hardwired because of what theologians call the fall, which you can read about in Genesis 2, to choose to disobey God. And so that has rendered us in a state in which there is nothing we can do to fix the lack of relationship with God. It's broken, like my foot. And yet, it can't be healed by virtue of something you or I do. God, people, and so what we need is a Christ. We need someone who would be able to live the life that God demands. 
and to die the death that we deserve, and yet to rise again, having been a fully sufficient sacrifice for sinners. Who is that? It's Jesus. It's Christ. And the response, God, people, Christ response, the response is not, well, if, if I somehow live good enough, then God will wave his magic wand and the good will outweigh the bad and I'll get into heaven when I die. Friends, that's not Christianity. Christianity is, if you believe what Christ has done and turn from sin and turn to him, then you will find a whole new way of life open to you in Christ. God, people, Christ, response. Friend, you can remember all of that. If I can do it, who, who, who is vastly less intelligent and able to remember than I think probably everybody in the room, the fact that I'm the one sitting here talking and you're looking is nothing other than tremendous irony but if I can remember God, people, Christ's response, you can too. Write them down and look in everyday life for opportunities. Not to ram that message down somebody's throat who doesn't want to hear, but to gain a hearing, to help acquaint people with the essential message of what the Bible says. There are 66 books and a whole lot of words, but that's essentially what the whole Bible is about. God people, Christ, response. Church, the mission we've been given is to share that message with as many people as we can, whether it's across the street here in Tempe or by sending Phil and Julie Hoshiwara to the other side of the world, where in Thailand there are only 2% of people who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the church exists. Now, when I was growing up as a kid, and and especially when I was a young follower of Jesus, I thought that this great commission, this this, uh, God, people, Christ response, summarized as making disciples in Matthew 28 meant simply that you and I, as we go through normal life, are to share the gospel. And then as people respond, we're to rejoice and hug them and welcome them as Christians but that's it. But that's essentially what the gospel message means. That's what it means to make disciples. And friends, does it mean that? Yes, it does. But it doesn't only mean that. There is, in fact, more here. It means more than that. You see, It's interesting to try and think about when those 11 disciples heard Jesus say these words, what did they understand Jesus to mean? And we, in fact, know. Here's a stab at it, what they would have heard if we'd sort of elongate Jesus' command to make disciples. Then what they would have heard is something like this. Share the gospel. Invite people to turn from sin and trust in me as the Lord Jesus Christ. And then gather those people into churches by baptizing them and start teaching them as disciples 
to follow and obey Jesus. And then when there's enough of them to do so, send them to start more churches who will start more churches who will start more churches. In other words, gather, rinse, repeat. It's like your shampoo. This is what Jesus meant. Now, how do we know that? In other words, how do we know this isn't Chuck reading more into Jesus? Well, it's because it's exactly what the disciples did. You see, Matthew 28 ends, and there's no more Matthew. And Mark, Luke, and John all recount simultaneously the same events. But then we get to sequentially what happened next, the book of Acts. And what is Acts about? Acts is about God's Word spreading through His people by means of the Spirit, accomplishing the work of starting more and more and more churches. Guess where Church on Mill came from? It didn't come from any of us. It came from people before us who came from the ones before them, who came from the ones before them. We can trace all the way back to the first church in Jerusalem. The Great Commission means share the gospel interpersonally in everyday life. But it means more than that. It means gather as Christians. Help each other grow up in Jesus. And then don't be concerned just about 13th and Mill. This one group of people. But be committed to helping start more churches, helping churches who are dying. Friend, it's tragic. There are many of them, especially in Arizona. And help those churches turn around, get healthy again, and give our lives together to making disciples who will start churches who start churches. This is worthy of all of our money, of all of our time, of all of our labor, because it is through this plan of God that the great news of the Lord Jesus Christ will reach every tribe, tongue, and nation. I want to commend you because you are a, a church committed to this work. You are constantly giving of yourselves and your resources as we send people out. And God is glorified in it. Now that, brothers and sisters, is the introduction to the sermon. I want to show you now what we came together to see today in this particular text. It's the plan that God has shared. Because it tends to be the part of the Great Commission that doesn't get emphasized. So the question I would ask you is, how exactly will Christians and churches accomplish this mission? How exactly does God tell us to work this out? Well, it's rather simple, actually. It's the latter half of verse 19 and all of verse 20. It's baptizing and teaching. That's God's plan. Those are the the how, if you will of the Great Commission. So just let me visit with you briefly about them, apply them, and we'll be done. First, baptism. What is baptism? Well, most of us have been baptized. Some of us haven't. 
And all of us know people who have yet to be baptized. So if you've already walked that road, I hope you'll just be encouraged by hearing again what it's for. And if you haven't, maybe today for the first time you would consider the importance of being baptized. Baptism is a physical representation of a spiritual reality. So here's how it works. When somebody hears the gospel, God, people, Christ, response, and by God's grace, they respond to that message with faith and repentance. They, they believe. Then, now this is a little confusing, but spiritually speaking, when they believe, then they've already spiritually been baptized, meaning they've taken on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They have been, if you will, immersed into his death and rose again in the spirit to new life. Now, I know that might sound nuts, but read Romans 6. That's what it teaches. That to become a Christian means to have been placed into the spirit, into the death of Christ, and you've risen again. And then what is water baptism? Well, water baptism is the physical, outward public demonstration of what's already happened spiritually. Baptism, then, is like a wedding ring. Those of you who are married, when you put that ring on, did the putting of that ring on, that physical act, cause you to be married? All the spouses are concerned, not the men at least. I don't want to mess this one up. No, it didn't make you married. But that doesn't make it unimportant. The wedding ring symbolizes to you and to everybody else, I'm taken. I'm off the market. No, you can't have me. I belong to him. I belong to her. Right? And it is a pledge. It is a reminder. It is a very significant act through which culturally we say, I'm hers and she is mine. Friends, that's what water baptism does. It tells everybody else, I'm with Jesus and Jesus is with me. And forever, he is the one I have pledged myself to. And he has given himself fully and completely to me. Baptism symbolizes the commitment of Christ to us and us to Christ, and it joins you thereby to a visible local body of believers. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, after Peter preached his great sermon, it says this, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Friend, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you trust him, that he alone has made you right with God. And yet, let me put it humorously, and never have like an Oreo been dunked, then the most important next thing you can do to follow God, to obey him, to grow up in him, is to follow Jesus in baptism. Because it is the outward public message of pledging yourself to Christ. 
and thereby it is essential for all of God's people. Now, yes, frankly, I think it's weird. God could have left us with all kinds of things to do, but he left us with get dunked underwater in front of people. That's rather bizarre. And yet, it's incredibly beautiful because think about its, think about its symbolism. The water washing you is a symbol of having been washed from the filth of sin. The, the movement of being placed under the water is a symbol of Christ going into the grave and you dying with him. The, the coming up out of the water is symbolic of the miracle of the resurrection. The clean water running down you is a symbol, is a reminder of the fact that Jesus has forgiven. It is a beautiful thing. If you haven't yet been baptized, I want to encourage you to do something courageous, and that's come find me. I'm not able to get away very fast. Come find me. Tell me you want to talk more about baptism. I'd love to share with you. Friend, we will not manipulate you to get into the water before you're ready. We will love you and talk with you about that as long as you'd like. But this is an important area of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus says that's how you make disciples. You, you tell them the truth. God, people, Christ respond, response. Some people will believe. And those who believe, bring them to church. Get them connected with a body. Have them hear about the need to be baptized. And then dunk them underwater. Raise them back up and celebrate. And then, ongoingly, teach them to observe all that I've commanded them. Friends, the baptism is a one-time thing. The teaching is a rest-of-life thing. How do we teach each other? We teach each other by this great act of humility that you have been taking on for the last 35 minutes. You've been listening to someone say, this is what God has said. And in a culture in which everybody has their own truth, you start every Sunday by saying, I'm going to put my hiney in a chair and be quiet. And brothers and sisters, this, you could not be doing something right now more radical and countercultural than saying, I will be taught the truths of God's word not through arriving at my own conclusions, but who, through hearing it taught and then deciding, is that what it actually says? Do you hear the difference? Friends, that's part of the miracle of the church. God's word spoken, you then wrestling through what it says. Is that really what it says? And then choosing through relationships with each other and talking with the Lord to believe or to reject that message. This is what the church does. And then that preached word gives life to the whole church. As we gather in connection classes, as parents teach their kids, as people who take on the posture of an uncle and an aunt help those of us with children, as Brothers and sisters get together to read the scriptures throughout the week as we call each other to encourage one another.
as we gather in homes, many of us tonight in gospel communities, we, we gather around the word to again say, what does it say? I need to be taught. No, I don't like that. Yes, I'll believe it because it's there. And we help each other that we might again and again and again turn from our own thoughts back to what God has said in his word. And in so doing, find grace and strength and peace and hope. Friend, have you found this to be true experientially? This is what we do on and on and on. And we do so not only with a view to ourselves, but mindful of the fact that there's still empty chairs here. And friend, there are more people to hear the good news. And 99.9% of them will hear it, not from me sitting in here, but from you. As you lovingly, compassionately, tenderly, but clearly say, this is what God says. And invite others to respond. Friend, this is how. This is how the Great Commission is fulfilled, baptizing and teaching. Our prayers this morning, if you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ, that in so doing this morning, in so hearing God, people, Christ's response, the, the miracle that the reality that this is all true would rattle you to your core and you would have the experience that so many of us have had of turning from a life without God to one with him, not by changing your behavior, but by coming to the end of yourself, by turning from sin, turning to Jesus, and thereby being changed forever. Friend, if you already know this, Lord Jesus Christ, would you consider before you leave this room, who do you know doesn't yet believe that you will give yourself to praying for, to being kind to, and to sharing as the Lord gives you opportunity. Let's pray. Father, we pray you'd use your word now to a kindle, kindle afresh and anew in our hearts what you have done for us in Christ. We pray that you'd remind us not to be a church that cares only for the few who are here, but for the many who are out there. We pray for any who are here who have not yet been baptized that they would make the decision now, even as I'm praying, to do so. We love you. We thank you for the miracle of the resurrection. We thank you for your kindness in choosing to involve us with your great commission. We pray that we'd be a church who are tenaciously committed to the simple responsibility of baptizing and teaching. And it's in Jesus' name we say, amen. Amen.